What is going on, everybody? Welcome to Flag to Flag on Fox Sports 640. I'm Jeremy Kaufman, ready to talk the world of NASCAR and IndyCar as we get ready the month of May in full swing. But got to start out with the race at the Monster Mile out there in Dover, Delaware. Hendrick Motorsports, you want to talk about just a complete butt whooping. One, two, three, four. The entire top four swept by Hendrick Motorsports. And that is the fourth time in more than 70 years in NASCAR history. Just the fourth time that has happened. It happened twice in 56 and 57 with Peter DiPaolo racing, doing that at uh, Titusville in North Wilkesboro. And then it happened again November 2005 in the season finale. Roush Fenway Racing went ahead and grabbed themselves the four top spots. Hendrick Motorsports, they just did it again. Bowman, Larson, Elliott, and Byron. And I'll tell you, the 48, they've got to thank their pit crew for this one. Alex Bowman's team had the fastest stop of the season, and that was really the only way they were going to grab the lead. It was the final pit stop of the race just after lap 300, where we had a caution. Everybody came down pit road, and it was Bowman's team who got off pit road first. There's been some discrepancy about the actual number of the pit stop. Racing Insights, who measures it for TV, said... 11.8 was the time, but some of the pit crew coaches are saying that might have been actually like an 11.3, which is unreal when you consider these four tire pit stops. I mean, you see fast times in other forms of motorsport, but to go out there with just five guys, jump over the wall, jack up the car, change all four tires and run back and forth and do that in that amount of time is very impressive. That team firing on all cylinders, and that is the second win of the season for Bowman. So good stuff happening for the 48 team. It's his first multi-win season. We haven't seen the 48 having multiple wins since Jimmy Johnson drove the car. And it's been a while, you know, the 48 definitely back. And it definitely felt right, by the way, seeing that team win at the Monster Mile. Jimmy Johnson, uh, this is 11 wins, I believe, he got there. Uh, They had a plaque to him out there by Victory Lane. And the Monster, even out front, Miles the Monster, had a life-size 48 car in his hand. So it really seemed meant to be at least for Alex Bowman in 48 uh, to get this win this past weekend, the second, like I said, of the season. And that puts Hendrick Motorsports once again at the top of the board. Kyle Larson, he was the fastest car, I think, the dominator. But my concern for Kyle Larson, and it's tough to say that when you've got a guy who finished second and led 263 of the 400 laps, but the problem is he didn't win again. Kyle Larson and company, I don't know what it is with this team closing out the races. They can dominate week in, week out. But the question is, is Kyle Larson going to be able to win that race? And and nine times out of ten, it feels like no. In fact, he has had 24 top two finishes in his Cup Series career, not including this past weekend. Seven times Kyle Larson has gotten victory lane. So he's only averaging uh, about 22% average of winning when he finishes in the top two. Also, another really surprising number that I saw from him, he has led more than 100 laps 15 times, three wins in those races. He is the guy you think of for dominating and not winning, and they have got to shake that because winning is so important in this current format of NASCAR, not to say that consistency is dead. Some people love to argue that, you know, the consistency aspect has been taken out of the equation by this format, but it's still very important to constantly run well. He earned himself some stage points, but the winning cannot be uh, understated here. It's so important. I mean, you look at the way the championship has come out. You have to win 
to win the championship in that final race. It's never happened otherwise. So Kyle Larson and that team, second place is great. They've got themselves a win. I have no concerns for them, at least early in the season. I don't even know if you can say early anymore. It's going by so quick. We're basically halfway already. We are halfway. This was race 13 on our way to the um, playoffs this year. Kyle Larson, he's been doing a great job. That team just needs to work on the end of the race. They are not closing things out the way they need to be. And to me, that is Kyle Larson's biggest issue right now. We've seen this with other teams. They're not making, uh, they're not having bad days, I should say, with good cars, which is a good thing, but they are letting wins slip away. Pit road cost them that. And it just was not, uh, at least with the Hendrick cars, it was not easy to pass up front. Those guys were so evenly matched with that one, two, three, four, it really did seem like whoever got out in front and was in control of the race, they were going to be the guy to beat. Uh, Larson, he put the pressure for sure on Bowman, but I don't know if he burnt up his stuff just trying to run him too hard, what the deal was, but he fell off late in the race, and Bowman was able to cruise to a pretty easy victory. I don't know. The Monster Mile really hasn't been very monstrous lately for these cup guys. A very clean race once again. Not a lot of lead changes. uh, Not a lot of passing. I know there was some debate online whether or not it was a good race. Um, This is the first time in 50 years Dover hasn't hosted two races. And I got to be honest with you, I'm not that disappointed by it. And and that's what's unfortunate. Um, And I think that just speaks to the style of racing we have there. When you cut a race date from a racetrack that's great, like when Darlington lost their second date, everybody lost their mind. It seems like everybody's kind of okay with Dover having one date, and I just think that goes to show you what the racing is like there right now. It's It wasn't a terrible race, but there wasn't a lot of action in this one, and maybe that is because Larson was just so good through most of it that he dominated, but it didn't seem like there was the kind of passing we've seen, even in previous weeks when people try to say somebody stunk up the show and argue it. Yeah, sometimes that happens, but look what was going on in the pack. There was great racing there. I don't know if it was just the coverage wasn't doing as good of a job of showing it or what, but it seemed to be a very calm, uneventful race at Dover. So uh, we'll see what the new car performs there. But if you are waiting for Dover to come back for a second race this year, it is not going to be happening. And we'll see where they end up on the uh, 2022 schedule, which hopefully will be coming out sometime during the summer. Taking a look, though, at uh, another guy who deserves a lot of credit right now. He is well into the playoff bubble battle. Um, Tyler Reddick, eighth place finish. Another good run out of this team. Year over year, Tyler Reddick is so much more consistent than he was last year. And really, that goes for both of the RCR cars because they have not been running great in previous seasons. Well, right now, they've got both of their cars sitting in the playoffs, which is a surprise to me, honestly. You know, they used to be an incredible team, Richard Childress Racing. They were competing for wins week in, week out. That is not the organization they currently have. So to have two cars sitting in playoff contention, I think that's a great job right now for this organization. Austin Dillon is 14th in the point standings. He is 60 above the cut line, so he's got himself about a race gap there to be comfortable. Tyler Reddick, he is on the dreaded bubble. We always talk about this bubble position, And what's so tough about this format is Tyler Reddick can go into next weekend and say he's got 17 points over the cut line, over Matt Benedetto, who's sitting in 17th. But if anybody from outside that buffer wins, that cut line moves down again. And next thing you know, Tyler Reddick can be outside looking in very easily. So definitely not a comfortable position for them to be in. But the consistency has been there for this team in the last couple of weeks. And that has been an impressive 
improvement over what we saw last year. When it comes to consistency, though, there is one guy who needs to be shouted out above and beyond anybody in this field right now, especially when you talk about year-over-year improvement. I got to go back to these Hendrick guys. One, two, three, four. Well, you got to look at the guy who finished in fourth, William Byron. Now, he had Chad Knauss as a crew chief last year. They got their first win right at the last second, got them into the playoffs in this regular season finale out there, the Coke Zero Sugar 400 at Daytona. But I was curious to see how this year would go for William Byron. Got a little more experience under his belt. The big thing, though, is the crew chief switch, Rudy Fugel. And you think, well, he had Chad Knauss. It's got to be a downgrade. I I disagree with that. Chad Knauss is an incredible crew chief. There's no doubt about that. But finding a chemistry with a crew chief is equally as important to how good the driver and crew chief are. If they're great drivers and great crew chiefs, but they work terribly together, it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't matter how good they are. You're not going to get good performance. I'm not saying Byron and Knauss worked terrible together. I don't really know much about their dynamic. But Rudy Fugel, I know that he raced with William Byron in the truck series, and they won a ton of races. So what's happening right now with uh, Byron? Ready for this one? Because it's, it's been almost kind of a sneaky stat. 11 straight top 10 finishes. He might be going for the record that Jeff Gordon set himself a while back. Because that's an impressive number. 11 straight top 10s. Byron is the picture of consistency this year. He's got the win. That came at Homestead Miami Speedway. He loves winning here in Florida. Two career wins. Both have come in the Sunshine State. But what I am blown away by with him is his points position because of this consistency. He continues to sit um, second in the point standings, 473 points. He's just a point above Martin Truex Jr., who's got three wins. But, and this is the big stat, you know, sitting second in points behind Denny Hamlin, who has got quite the lead, that is a statement for Byron, because he is currently in the consistency, in the point standings, sitting above all of his teammates, the entire Penske organization, three of the four Gibbs cars. Everybody is behind him based on raw points from the races. They are firing on all cylinders. They are in contention for wins. They have gotten a win. Hopefully they can get a couple of more because they're going to need that to cement themselves in the playoff standings. But as it stands right now, halfway through the regular season, he would be sitting there right at second in the point standings tied with Alex Bowman if we reset the points coming up for the playoffs this weekend. That is an incredible year-over-year turnaround from a team that had to basically win Daytona at the very last second to get themselves into the playoffs. You can't understate how incredible the turnaround has been for not only William Byron, but all of Hendrick Motorsports. And I'm going to throw in as a Chevy whole, Austin Dillon and Tyler Reddick. You've got to give them credit because as a Chevy organization, they had been falling behind all of the Chevys. And now you've got a really good group of Chevys contending for wins week in, week out, led by the Hendrick Brigade right now. So big shout out for William Byron. That is a team to watch coming up this weekend. And as we continue through the season, I expect we're probably going to see a couple of more wins out of that 24 team. So how about we look at the other side of this? Somebody's got to run good while somebody's got to run bad and look no further than Eric Amarola. I feel terrible for this team. And it's just because everything you can imagine that could go wrong is going wrong for Eric Amarola. And by proxy, his teammate Chase Briscoe is also having a lot of those issues. Eric Amarola blew out a tire 
crashed while running 13th. They had been in the top 10. They were having a decent day. It seems like not only is Stuart Haas racing off as a whole with Kevin Harvick really being the only consistent contender on that team right now, but it seems like uh, every time that the 10 team of Eric Amarola can turn it around and have a good run, they come back the next week and have the worst possible finish they can have. They did that again this week. 37th, that was last. No other cars in the field. They were the first car out of the race. And here's what concerns me about him and his teammate, Chase Briscoe, who are having a lot of trouble. We are now, as it's been mentioned before, halfway through the regular season. That gives us 13 more races to go at this point. When you look at how many points behind the cut line they are, I think it is safe to say that Eric Amarola and Chase Briscoe must win a race if they have any hope of making the playoffs. There's no way they're pointing into this thing, especially Eric Amarola. He sits in 28th in the point standing. So as it stands, he's got himself quite a ways to climb just from the amount of cars he has to leapfrog in the point standings. But the big number, 169 points, that puts him 129 out of the bubble position as it stands now. His teammate Chase Briscoe just one standing spot better than him in 27th. He is 98 points back, and he had a 35th place finish after getting crash damage this past weekend too. These numbers are terrible. And this is really going to be a tough road ahead for Eric Amarola and Chase Briscoe. The question I have, are these guys going to be in the playoffs? 13 races, you know, weeks ago we talked about when do you hit the panic button? We got time still. Well, quickly, time is running out. It doesn't seem like half of the regular season's gone already, and these guys are still sitting way down in points. I really don't think Eric Amarola or Chase Briscoe are going to win a race. I don't see it happening, not the way they're running right now. You can always fluke into one, maybe get some rain. We still have another plate race left or uh, a super speedway race. One of these days, I'm going to realize there's no plates left on these guys. Um, but that at Daytona, yeah, I mean, Eric Amarola, he's got himself a win at Daytona and a win at Talladega, so he's got an opportunity to upset there. But based on where these teams are right now, I think it is shocking if they make the playoffs. They're not doing it on points. They, they've made their bed. You need to win Here's how the point standings look right now. So we've got our guys that are locked in. Martin Truex Jr. is no longer the only multi-time winner this year with Alex Bowman's win. That puts him second on the grid, tied with William Byron. Joey Logano up there. Uh, we got Kyle Larson. We got Ryan Blaney, Brad Keselowski. Um, down through uh, Michael McDowell, who are in the win column. But here are the numbers you got to look at. The guys that have not won yet and are part of this bubble battle, the points battle to try and stay alive in this playoff and make the playoff once we get to um, September in the Southern 500. Denny Hamlin, I think he's got nothing to be worried about. First of all, Denny Hamlin's probably going to win at some point. The question I have is when? When is Kevin Harvick and Denny Hamlin going to find their ways to victory lane? The Fox crew was debating it before the race. Um... I heard, you know, Michigan being thrown out. Pocono is where these guys could potentially win. Those are coming up in the next uh, month to uh, Michigan's not even in until August. So that, that could be a very long time. I think by the time the playoffs start, Kevin Harvick and Denny Hamlin will have both won a race. I think Chase Elliott will probably win a race too at some point. But if they do not win the race... First and foremost, Denny Hamlin, he continues to lead the points championship by a large margin. He's got himself... Um, a 101-point advantage over anybody 
in the points. So the 15 bonus points uh, for the playoffs are um, up for grabs for the regular season champion. Well, Denny Hamlin, not only he's got that, but the regular season champion will be guaranteed in. So if he can maintain this massive points lead and continue having top tens, he's definitely going to be good. As it stands now, he is nearly 300 points above the cut line. So Denny Hamlin, I wouldn't be concerned about. He's almost double that of anybody else who hasn't won a race yet. Chase Elliott is 151 above the cut line. He's the next guy in line. Kevin Harvick right behind him, 146 in. Those guys, I think, are going to be in the playoffs. I would be shocked if any of those guys doesn't make it. And I'd actually be mildly surprised if none of them win a race before we get through these next 13 weeks. Austin Dillon, this is those RCR guys we talk about, sitting there 60 points above the cut line. Chris Buescher, Roush Fenway Racing, man, they're in the news big time. That's coming up on the show why Roush has got to be talked about today. But they're sitting there with the 17, just 28 above the line, but still in contention. Tyler Reddick, we mentioned earlier on the bubble, up by 17. It's Matty D down by 17. Did not have the race they needed at Dover. 24th, and they tweeted after the race from the Wood Brothers account, which uh, they're a really good follow on Twitter if you don't follow the Wood Brothers they're great because they're just honest. I feel like it's just one of the Wood Brothers. Uh, might be Glenn or uh, Leonard just going out there and uh, whoever it is from the Wood Brothers just going out there and uh, uh, tweeting uh, whatever they feel. But they basically said, look, we were slow. There's no excuse for that. We were just slow. Um, 24th place finish, and that puts them 17 below the cut line. But considering where that team was, they were back with Briscoe and Amarola, and they did what had to be done. They rebounded to get themselves at least in the battle, which those other guys have not been able to do. Kurt Busch, he talked about, look, we just have not had the speed we need this season. They're currently sitting there 30 points below the cut line. It is Stenhouse Jr. who is sitting 32 below the cut line. Newman back by 38 points. That puts him out there um, in 20th right now in the overall playoff grid. So continuing to follow the bubble battle, that is going to be the place that will be very interesting. And as I said before, it takes just one win to shake everything up in that standings. If a guy like Amarola or Briscoe finds their way to victory lane, whole cut line moves. We got a whole different game here about the uh, numbers and where everybody's going to end up and what their comfort zone is. So bottom line, you want to make it easy? Get yourself the victory lane this weekend at Circuit of the Americas. Coming up a little later on the show, we're definitely going to break down Coda because this place is unbelievable. It's a heck of a road course. Formula One uh, United States Grand Prix is held there. So if you are a Formula One fan, you know a lot about it. If maybe you're just an NASCAR fan, you don't know about this racetrack, we'll tell you what we can look forward to this weekend. Plus, there could be some weather in play. That'll make things interesting. But before we get to that, Twitter was a buzz in the NASCAR world. Tony Stewart was the first guy in this generation of drivers to leap from a really great team to start his own team and have major success. Well, another driver's about to do that, and it could involve Roush Fenway Racing. We'll let you know what the deal is, who is potentially going to be a team owner next year, and what that could um, due to the silly season stuff going on, because there's a lot of drivers who could be caught up in the ripple effect of this. More Flag to Flag is next. It's Fox Sports 640. Is Brad Keselowski about to be a team owner? It's Flag to Flag on Fox Sports 640. I'm Jeremy Kaufman recapping the news from the world of NASCAR. And we got IndyCar, of course, to touch on coming up in a little bit. But last night, Twitter was ablaze with this report, uh, courtesy of Jim Utter, that came out. Brad Keselowski, co-owner and driver for Roush Fenway Keselowski Racing? Yeah, I didn't see this one coming at all. Now, right off the bat, the obvious connection is Ford and Ford on those two teams. But Roush Fenway Racing is a a unique organization. We talk about them being a powerhouse 10, 15 years ago. I started watching NASCAR racing in 2007. And at the time, they had a driver lineup of Five cars. You can't even do that now, but they had a five car team 
And, and they had a lot of guys that could get to victory lane between Matt Kenseth, Greg Biffle, Carl Edwards, and then you had McMurray on the team as well, and David Reagan, who was driving the six at the time. This was a big team. And slowly over the last 10 years, they've lost their drivers, they've lost their funding, they've lost cars down to a two-car organization. You know, Edwards left, Kenseth left, Biffle retired, and really, Roush Fenway has not been a player for a while. And to an extent, while they are having a great year for them, they're still not much of a factor. We, we mentioned them both in the playoff picture. Well, Briscoe is sitting there with a 17th place finish. He remains 15th in the point standings, one above the bubble. Ryan Newman, um, 23rd place finish last weekend. He sits uh, currently 38 out of the playoffs. So the question I think everybody asks, first and foremost, you got Brad Keselowski driving for a powerhouse. He's got Team Penske behind him. He signed a one-year deal, and there's been a lot of rumors about what could happen. Why was this a one-year deal? Is Keselowski planning on leaving? Well, then this comes out of nowhere yesterday, and as further reports drop, if you didn't catch this It sounds like, according to Fox Sports and Bob Pachris Speaks, I listen, that this is a done deal, that this is going to happen. Brad Keselowski basically is going to drive the six car next year. He will be full-time at Roush Fenway, and it will be RFKR, Roush Fenway, Keselowski Racing. Don't know exactly how the ownership structure is going to be broken up, but we talked about even the Fenway Sports Group. Uh, Was it LeBron James who uh, bought his way into that? So... Some star power starting to develop around uh, Roush Fenway. Now, the question I think a lot of people have is, first and foremost, should you leave Team Penske to start your own team? And I'll say this on the, this topic. Brad Keselowski, he's 37 years old. He's looking to his future. I think team ownership is a great way to go for these guys. Now, the question is, will he be able to perform at Roush Fenway Racing, even if he's a part owner, because you look at the, there's, there's a distinct difference between Roger Penske's two Fords or three Fords rather, and the two Fords they've got over at uh, RFR. I look back to Tony Stewart though when I think of this story, and I remember when he made the announcement for Stewart Haas Racing. At the time, he was driving for Joe Gibbs, won two championships, had been there his whole NASCAR career, ninety nine to two thousand eight. And more importantly, the team he was going to get involved with was Haas Racing. They had uh, the 66 and the 70, I think, back then. Johnny Sauter drove for them for a bit. I think Jeff Green was in the car around 2007, 2008. That was kind of the drivers that they had. And that was a small team. That was an underfunded team as far as I considered them. Tony Stewart made that move, and I thought, there's no way this is going to end well. Leaving Joe Gibbs to start your own team with a not even established organization? Well, obviously, I was an idiot there. I mean, Tony Stewart and that organization has become a powerhouse, and even though they haven't had the greatest year, uh, SHR is one of the biggest teams in the sport, and Tony Stewart, obviously, uh, all-star race, championship, and plenty of wins, driving for himself. So when you think about Brad Keselowski moving over to start his, or not really start a team, to join an established organization, I feel like he has a leg up already because... At the time that the transition was made, Tony to Haas, making Stuart Haas, Keselowski to RFR, Roush Fenway is still in a better position. 
Plus, we have this new car coming next year that's going to shake up a lot of things. I know the charters are going to be in major demand, and I don't think there's enough to go around. That's going to be an interesting story to follow between Junior Motorsports may be coming up. Cowling's going to want one. We know they're going to be there next year. Is 2311 going to open a second car? Is Roush Fenway going to go to a third car? Because if Brad Keselowski moves over, it sounds like the sixth is going to be his destination, that he will be driving the number six car as a driver-owner. But what's going to happen to Ryan Newman? You know, Newman is, um, he's a guy who's definitely toward the end of his career. We all know the major accident he had and what effect that can have on a driver. I don't know. But Ryan Newman does seem committed to still wanting to race. Um, And I don't think Ryan Newman's really looking to retire right now. I could be off on that. I don't know what's going on in Ryan Newman's head. But I don't feel like he's in a place just based on watching him race and watching him, you know, speak on TV that he is ready to step aside. So the question, of course, becomes, well, what happens to Ryan Newman if he takes over the six? What happens to Chris Buescher? Do they decide to put Newman in the 17 and drop Buescher? I don't think they will because it seems like there's a relationship. Roush and Buescher got separated, and then he wanted to bring him back into the fold, and he was able to get him in that 17. So I feel like Buescher would be the safest. The six car is the question. And then this has an industry-wide ripple effect because... Based on the reporting I'm seeing, it's, this is not an if. This seems like it's a done deal. It's going to be happening. I don't know when we're actually going to hear the announcement. This will be one of those worst-kept secret in NASCAR kind of situations. But we already had somewhat of a structure for the future of Team Penske. That's kind of what we see thrown into this huge loop. What's going to happen with the drivers at Penske? Because we have Austin Sindrick currently kicking ass in the— Xfinity Series, a very talented driver. He's going to be doing double duty this weekend. But for those of you who do not know the connection between Austin Sindrick and Tim Sindrick, his father, who is the president for Penske and is one of the chief strategists, at least for a while, was for Will Power, and I believe he's still over there as a strategist on one of the cars for Penske in the IndyCar Series. So the family connection right off the bat makes it a shoo-in that he's going to have some sort of a partnership. We all knew that coming along. As soon as the name Sindrick popped up on the scoreboard for Brad Keselowski's truck team, which another element there, Keselowski has had teams before, so he's been in the position of being the boss. But you, you look back to Austin Sindrick, he ran great there. He's running great in Xfinity. He's running a car for Penske uh, part-time in Cup. He's going to be doing that this week in Dakota. And we had heard that right off the bat when they signed Matt Benedetto to stay at the Wood Brothers, which is an allied team to Penske, that Sindrick was going to take that ride next season. He's moving to Cup. He's got one more Xfinity year. The 21 is Sindrick's next year. And Matty D, now where does he go? Well, the two car looks like it's going to be open. The 21 for Sindrick is going to be taken there, at least right now, by Sindrick. Benedetto is the one, the odd man out with Ryan Newman. Question is, does Sindrick just go straight to Penske now? If the two car is open and you know that's where you're going to put him, put him in the two car. Does that mean Matt Benedetto gets the opportunity to stay at the Wood Brothers? Does that mean that that seat still opens again? Is Benedetto still hunting for a ride? There's so many questions that this one domino of Brad Keselowski falling and moving to his own team and joining Roush Fenway is going to have across the entire field, because this affects about three or four different cars. Um, Will, you know, and and the other element to this, which I mentioned a bit earlier, but is kind of 
the hurricane, the disaster that's waiting ahead for us is this charter system. There's not enough of them if we keep growing in the sport. There are 36 charters out there. We know that uh, some of the lower-funded teams have them, and they can lease them, which is what organizations have been doing, getting a leased charter. But you can't lease it two years in a row. You have to use it. You have to run full-time to keep it. And they're worth a lot of money because you're guaranteed better payouts when you have a charter. You're guaranteed to race when you have a charter. That's a big deal. But in the best-case scenario for a fan where we see more rides open up, Penske has got three cars, the Wood Brothers car, and then Roush Fenway with two. If they keep Newman, that's another charter they're going to need. And I don't see them being able to get that when you have Cowlig Racing moving up, when you have the potential of Junior Motorsports making this move next year, when you have also um, the element of Rick Ware trying to lease these charters and not being able to lease them all year in, year out. Where are they going to go? We know the 37 JTD Daughtry Racing, they're doing it without a charter next this year. And if they're still doing that next year and four more cars end up coming into the field or we have additional cars at all, that could put them in a tough position getting sponsorship because they're not guaranteed to race anymore. So there's so many moving parts with this decision. The only guy I think who's sitting pretty right now is Brad Keselowski because he's about to become a team owner, it sounds like. And at his point in his career, he's a champion. He's still trying to get that Daytona 500. But I think Brad Keselowski going for the team ownership role is a smart move. Denny Hamlin just did it. He's not racing for his own team, but he's building a future for a few years down the road when he can't drive anymore, when he steps aside from the driver's seat, Keselowski will be an owner. Hamlin's going to be an owner. Jeff Gordon with Hendrick Motorsports, you know they're going to be a part of that. You got Tony Stewart. The drivers of yesterday are all becoming the owners of tomorrow, and that's great, and I love that. The question is, will Brad Keselowski be able to compete driving for himself, in a sense, and also driving for Jack Roush and the Fenway Sports Group? And I don't know what the answer is to that. I don't think they take off as good as Tony Stewart did. I just think that that was incredible what Tony Stewart did when he got in that car with him and Ryan Newman and they started that team. I think it might be a bit of more of a slow grow, but in the long haul, I think Brad Keselowski might be making the better decision for him to have longevity in the sport. Will it transition to on-track performance the next two or three years with him driving a Roush Fenway car as opposed to driving a... Penske car and being as successful as he has been in the two, that yet to be seen. But I think the potential is there, especially with the new car and with Brad bringing some extra funding, star power, the potential is there for them to become a more competitive organization. Earlier in the season, I've talked about this team. I think they're having a better year than they've had in a long time. They're having top 10 finishes. They're having more consistent runs. There's a possibility that one of those guys could grab a win. You never know. But it's definitely not going to be driving for Roger Penske. I'm very curious to see how this is going to unfold, though. This is, this is the story of the year right here, and it kind of fell out of the sky. I don't know if I haven't been paying attention, but um, Roush and Brad was not something I saw coming, in the very least. But I never saw Stuart Haas racing coming when Tony Stewart went to make that announcement. Um, so we'll see how he's able to perform uh, coming up this weekend. Um Uh, You know, there's another topic going on I wanted to talk about, just touch on really quick. NASCAR is, again, really heating up the number debate. 
And if you haven't seen this, somebody put up a graphic and it was really awesome online because it showed the three different number ideas. So I guess they got uh, Nielsen, which is a TV radio ratings company that, you know, they do all the TV ratings and stuff like that and put out the numbers to look at the uh, race team Alliance rather hired them to look at the number placement and see if they could provide more sponsor exposure. If they changed it up, turns out, yes, you could. And for some reason, this is like the biggest hotbed of controversy, shifting the numbers forward or backward on the side of the door. Personally, I really don't care. It's going to be the same race wherever the numbers are. But I I do also get why some people want the tradition of the numbers to stay the same because everything seems to be changing in the sport. Um I think that the sponsorship exposure is so minor, it really doesn't make a difference. And personally, if everybody's this up in arms about something so stupid, don't move the number. It just seems like this is a lose-lose right now. I don't see that changing in the way the sponsorship flows and everybody on the internet is losing their damn mind because NASCAR wants to move the numbers around. Um, There's also the crazy idea of let them put them where they want on the door, which is also my personal favorite. Who cares? If your sponsor wants your number moved a little bit further forward, kind of up below the eight post, then then put it there. Who cares? Just keep it on the door. Um, but ironically, the topic of where the number goes has been one of the hottest topics on NASCAR Twitter. There's a lot of fighting, a lot of debate over it. So I'm curious, what do you think about the number move? Is it a big deal? Am I off on this? Should they just keep them the way they are and stop messing with tradition? Or does it really not matter? At SuitsKVJ on Twitter, S-U-I-T-S-K-V-J on Twitter. You can follow me there. All right, coming up next, it's the month of May in Indianapolis. We've got some practice going on, and it started with the GMR Grand Prix, the Indianapolis road course. We'll break down Renus VK's first career win and a very impressive performance from Romain Grosjean. Plus, we'll take a look ahead to this week in Dakota. we got a uh, quite a few drivers in different places on the entry list this weekend and we'll talk about this challenging racetrack that we'll be taking our first go at this weekend with the nascar uh all three nascar national divisions the trucks xfinity and cup all going to be there more flag to flag is the next it's fox sports 640 the month of may is underway it's flag to flag at fox sports 640 and we got to turn our attention to the most famous racetrack in the world the indianapolis motor speedway it is of course the one that we're always talking about when we get to this time of year. My favorite race of the year, for sure. It's right up there with the Daytona 500. It is so much fun to watch these guys fly around there. And I saw speeds as high as 232 miles an hour in practice entering turn one. So those guys absolutely flying over there at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Yesterday, Tuesday's practice session, Will Power. He was up there at the top of the board, an average lap time over 226 miles an hour. They are flying around that place. But this past weekend, we tried the road course out for a little bit. Remus VK, his first career win, and I thought NBC did a great job of telling the story of this guy and how they moved from the Netherlands with his parents because they couldn't afford to go after the European racing. It was so difficult to do it there, and they said, you know, we're going to take a chance, and we're going to go to the United States with our son and fund his career, and it was expensive. It really was not easy for their family to pay for and watching his parents on pit road as he came down the front stretch to not only win his first IndyCar race but to do it at Indianapolis Motor Speedway is awesome I mean it was just an incredible win for that team uh, great for Renus VK, great momentum as they get ready to head into the championship uh, or uh, to the Indianapolis 500 rather um 
And taking a look at the point standings that they've got right now in uh, the IndyCar series, he's sitting there sixth in points. So off to a uh, very good start this season for Renus VK. But I have got to talk about Romain Grosjean. Now, Romain finished second after winning the pole and led about half this race and looked like he had a shot to go out there and win this before finishing second at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. But when you consider what this guy went through in the last year, to come out here and have this kind of performance and to see him, he's having fun. He's like an IndyCar, and you can tell how much he likes it because when he first got here, he said, I'm not racing those ovals. Nuts. I'm not doing the Indy 500. Now it's like, well, uh, maybe in a year or two we might do it. I don't know. I'm never saying never. So you can see he's starting to lighten up and have some good times in these cars. Like, you know, maybe I do want to give this Indy 500 thing a shot. It looks pretty amazing. But there is a photo, and I saw this picture, and I had to screenshot it because I thought it was just such an amazing shot. It is just Renus VK, or pardon me, it's just Romain Grosjean's hand right there holding that second place trophy. And it looks like kind of a steering wheel on the top. It's got a centerpiece, two bars that come out connected to an extended circle. And he's got his hand around it. And you see, he's got his thumb bandaged. Half of his hand is red from the burns that he experienced in that Formula One race as he holds this. And it's such a, powerful picture to me because here's a guy who went up into a ball of fire, jumped out of that car, defied the odds, had the burns, and then on top of all of that said, you know what? I love racing. I'm going to go to the United States and I'm going to get an Indy car and I'm still going to do this because this is who I am. This is what I love. To see somebody go through that, then come to the United States to continually chase a dream and then perform so quickly That's what racing is all about. Those are the feel-good stories that just make you stand up and cheer. I was so happy to see Romain Grosjean go out there and get that podium, get that pull. You can just see what it means to this guy. And I think he's going to be around for a while in the United States. I think he's going to be very uh, impressive. And honestly, you look at Formula One, you look at the difference in equipment and him driving for Haas and not having the greatest runs. I didn't know what to expect out of Romain. That's all I really know of his performance is his Formula One runs. He is impressive. He's doing a great job here over at uh, IndyCar in just a couple of starts. But I had to shout him out because you just what a feel-good story to see him bandaged up but still out there doing what he's doing and doing it well, putting the past behind him and rebounding. I mean, it's a great story, and I can't wait to see what Romain's going to continue to do out there on track. All week long, you can catch Indianapolis 500 practice. I got the uh, Peacock through Xfinity, and... They've got uh, live practice going pretty much all day, all week long. That'll be great to see. And then um, 35 cars for 33 spots. we got an old-school bump day coming up this weekend for Indianapolis 500 qualifying before the race coming up on Memorial Day weekend, uh, a week from this coming Sunday. Of course, Memorial Day weekend is always big. It's a little different this year. Uh, The Grand Prix of Monaco, that's how you start the triple. Breakfast in Monaco, lunch in Indianapolis, Dinner at Charlotte with NASCAR. Well, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to do that all this year because for some reason, and I don't know why, I get that Memorial Day is an American holiday, but the Grand Prix of Monaco is actually this weekend. So if you're excited for that, I don't want you to miss out. Heads up, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. on ESPN2, Grand Prix of Monaco is going to be on. So do not miss that thinking it's coming up next weekend. It is not going to be on Memorial Day weekend this year. So you can check that race out this weekend. But the cup cars, the Xfinity cars, and the truck cars are heading to what is an incredible racetrack. Coda, 
Circuit of the Americas in Austin, Texas. This was the surprise of the schedule to me. They had had some rumblings about the Bristol Dirt Race. I didn't think it was actually going to happen, but it did. And we, we saw that jump on the schedule. But Circuit of the Americas, because of its proximity to Texas Motor Speedway, I really never thought it stood a chance of getting a cup date. It's got all three series this year. We are going racing in Austin, Texas. And I'll give you some details on this racetrack. Um, first and foremost, it is a beast. It's not quite the size of Road America, but it is a long racetrack, 3.426 miles. We talk about turns. There's, I think, seven or eight of them at Watkins Glen. You got 12 um, corners at Sonoma, 20 turns at Circuit of the Americas. And there are three corners in particular that you're going to want to watch, your action spots this weekend. First and foremost, turn one, a tight hairpin corner. There is a long run down the front straightaway from the start-finish line up to this corner. Restarts and starts are going to be unbelievable. But it is up over 100 feet of elevation change from the start-finish line to turn one. So you have this huge uphill run into a tight hairpin corner. Then you run through some S's, some curves. You come to the top of the course. you got another very tough hairpin corner right at the top. Turn 11, that's another place to watch. But turn 12 is the corner that I am looking for. It's going to be the most challenging, I think, on this circuit. Because when you come out of the hairpin at turn 11, you have got one of the longest straightaways you'll see on a road or street circuit. These guys in testing with stock cars, cup cars, we're getting to speeds of 180 miles an hour on a road course. We don't see that, that level of speed very often on road courses. Then this thing's not just a 90 degree corner. I mean, the, the curbing almost sticks out in a way where if you can hit the curbing turning in, you did a hell of a job making this turn. It is a challenging corner that leads you into just a twisting, crazy portion of this course back to the start finish line with incredible braking. It's a passing zone that's going to be great. But there is going to be some danger lurking with this passing zone. It is a tough corner to make. Turn 1, turn 11, turn 12, three amazing passing zones, three difficult corners where I think we're going to see a lot of action for these guys this weekend. And, and something else to uh, think about when we go racing this weekend, NASCAR has severely limited practice and qualifying for all three divisions with the coronavirus pandemic. And next year, we're probably going to see a lot more normalcy with the schedule. But NASCAR did say that for the big events and for the new racetracks, we were going to have practice and qualifying happening. Well, that's what's going to happen this weekend. We have three practice sessions, one for each division, three qualifying sessions. Cup qualifying is going to be Sunday morning, uh, right after Monaco. You can go to cup qualifying. That'll take uh, place at 11 a.m. on Sunday before the race. Um, so we're going to have a lot of opportunities to get these guys on track. And you've seen guys branch out into the other series to try and get a little more experience. So we'll start with the cup field. The notable entries, which uh, I got no starting lineups for you because we're qualifying. It's group qualifying this weekend. A 25-minute first round, 10-minute second round for the top 12 to go ahead and get the pole uh, is the standard road course qualifying procedure. But the names to watch for that you normally don't see in the cup series, A.J. Allmendinger will be back with Cowlick Racing. We know the kind of road racer he is. Austin Sindrick is another fantastic road racer, and he will be rolling off in the 33 car. Uh, in the cup race, along with Kyle Tilly, a British racer, and Ty Dillon's got another shot. Gomp Brothers Racing back at the racetrack in the 96. The Xfinity Series is the one where we've got a lot of names to watch for. First and foremost, I am not always the biggest fan of cup drivers in the Xfinity Series. We've talked about that, and having them limited has been great for the series. I really think that. But I'm excited for this weekend because we have cup drivers that are going to be running in some lower-funded cars. Now, I'm not naive. I'm sure Stuart Haas and 
Um, they're going to probably have a, a say, Richard Childress as well, on some of these teams are going to have a say in making these cars um, and bringing better stuff to the track than normally these cars would have. But regardless, it's still going to help out teams like BJ McLeod Motorsports and Jordan Anderson Racing. They're going to have an assistance from what we're going to see this weekend with some of these cup drivers. So, in addition to our standards, Kevin Harvick will drive for BJ McLeod Motorsports. He'll be in the number five in the NASCAR Xfinity race. Spencer Pompelli, you might know that name from uh, sports car racing. I believe he's got himself a Rolex 24 or two. He's going to be driving for JD Motorsports. Miguel Paluto back in the car, uh, the number eight for Junior Motorsports. He's running the road courses. Uh, Josh Berry will not be in the car this week. Won that dash for cash, though, last weekend, so he's sitting pretty with $100,000 after a second-place finish. He'll take the weekend off, and I, I think he's in the car again next weekend at Charlotte. Sam Mayer's going to be taking over a majority of that schedule coming up in a couple of weeks. Boris Said will be driving for NBM Motorsports. We always see Boris Said when we go road racing. He'll be in the 13. Cole Custer driving the 17, that SS Greenlight car that you'll see the Rick Ware guys drive sometimes with Cody Ware. Um, that'll be Cole Custer this week. Andy Lally making another appearance for our motorsports in the 23. Here's a team I'm going to watch, though. The number 31, Jordan Anderson Racing. Tyler Reddick is going to be in that car. They were ready to go. Jordan Anderson Racing to move from the truck series to go full-time Xfinity Racing. And we talked about this earlier in the year, but if you need a refresher, there have been more than 40 cars entered in every single Xfinity race this year. Jordan Anderson Racing has no points. They've been excluded because there's been no qualifying. They intended to qualify at Daytona, make that race, and put themselves in the positions to then make the field. Qualifying at Daytona got rained out. There hasn't been qualifying since for the Xfinity cars. So they haven't had an opportunity. So I like the move for this team of throwing in a cup driver to go out there, make sure they get this car qualified and have a consistent run because we're going to have some more qualifying sessions coming up in the few weeks as we get some more races that are new. Xfinity still has the least of them. They need to get this car in the show. And if they can't race well, they're not going to have the points to fall back on. Tyler Reddick. Watch this 31 car. He'll be in that. Kyle Busch makes his first of five uh, uh, Xfinity starts of the year. He'll be driving the 54 as always. And Bassett Racing has got the 77 entered with Austin Dillon. Kind of the same situation there as they try to make up on some points. The Truck Series is going to have a lot of drivers going home. We got 44 entered. No cup drivers, though, because this is part of the Triple Truck Challenge. The half a million dollar bonus is alive for Sheldon Creed if he can win this week and at Charlotte next Friday night. If he doesn't win either of those races, it is off the table, but somebody will take a $50,000 bonus this week if he is unable to do that. Grant Enfinger will be back in the nine truck this week as Christian Eckes takes over the 98 at Thor Sport. Sam Mayer will make another start. He'll be driving for Brett Holmes as number 32. Jack Wood making his truck debut from the Arkham Menard series. He'll be driving the 24 for GMS now that uh, Rafael Lassard no longer driving that car. And finally, and this is another one that kind of came out of nowhere, we had read that um, Ty Majeski was going to get two starts for Thor Sport in a fifth truck, the 66. Those starts coming in the next two weeks. Charlotte, um, or not the next two weeks, Charlotte is next week after this, but then um, Nashville, I believe, is the second date. That's going to be a couple of weeks after that in mid-June. However, this week, the 66 will make its first start with driver Paul Menard. In the car, uh, NASCAR Twitter was a, uh, a buzz at Paul Menard making a return. Uh, many expressions and faces of Paul Menard are back, and he will be in that 66. We'll be looking to see how he does this weekend as we tackle Circuit of the Americas for um, a triple header of action coming up this weekend. And uh, by the way, we got about a 50% chance of rain all weekend long. And this is a road course. 
So how do we make it crazier? Why don't we slap some rain tires on these guys, let them race in the rain. Uh, reminder, though, we could still see delays. There are thunderstorms, and if we get lightning too close to the track, we will have to go into a 30-minute hold until it clears. Uh, here's where you can catch the action, though, coming up this weekend. It starts on Saturday with three races going down Saturday. The Toyota Tundra 225 Truck Series races at 1 p.m. on FS1, followed by the Pit Boss 250 at 4. That's the Xfinity cars. If you got the uh, track pass through NBC at 8 p.m., ARCA is going to Toledo, Ohio for 200 laps. Then on Sunday, it is the Grand Prix of Monaco. Like I said, remember, it's not Memorial Day weekend. It's coming up this weekend. You can catch that action 9 a.m. on Sunday. Cup qualifying will follow that on Fox Sports 1. And then FS1 has got you covered again for a Grand Prix in the Cup Series. That just seems so weird. The Echo Park Texas Grand Prix at Circuit of the Americas. It's Sunday, 2.30 p.m. on Fox Sports 1. We're back next Wednesday to recap it all and set you up for the Indianapolis 500. We'll catch you back then. Thank you so much for joining us on Flag to Flag on Fox Sports 640.